Let's pray. Father God, help us to hear what you would say to us. May it be gospel in our ears. And use these words even if I can't be with the people who are hearing them today. Speak through them. Challenges, encourages, be to us all we need. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I dive in, I'm going to read some more words from the scriptures. They're from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm picking up at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God stronger than human strength. Thanks be to God for his word. Picture the scene. It's a beautiful, sunny afternoon in the heart of an idyllic English chocolate box country village. And you're sat in an equally idyllic English chocolate box country church. You're the guest at a wedding. You've watched... The groom shuffled nervously at the front, waiting for his bride to arrive. You've been amused at the best man checking he has the rings about 20 times. The groom's mother and father came frighteningly close to a very public ending of their own marriage in a row over whether his flowers stripped. It was a blessed relief that they were interrupted by the vicar asking you to be upstanding for the bride. The organ anthem sounded, and as if signalling divine approval, a ray of sunlight suddenly streamed through the stained glass window onto the church below. You gasped in awe as a bride angelically gl glided to the front on her father's arm. You've endured all things bright and beautiful. You've held your breath. As the vicar asks if anyone knows of any reason why these two should not be married. And then the moment arrives. The bride and groom turn to face each other. They look deep into each other's eyes. And they promise to have and to hold from this day forward. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. 
in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. You cast your eyes around the church. Couples have forgotten that row over the directions to the church and the size of that parking space. They smile and they touch hands. Tissues slip beneath the veils of inordinately large hats, wiping away a few tears. Is there anyone thinking, fancy making them say all that, all those promises about better, worse, sickness, health, loving, cherishing? How restrictive. Typical vicar, typical church, bunch of killjoys. Nah, nobody's thinking that. We know this couple are setting out on what we hope will be an enduring relationship. We hope it will be one that will last for the rest of their lives. These are the promises, the bedrocks on which any enduring relationship they have must be built. Picture another thing. On 28th of June 1919 in the Palace of Versailles, Germany and the Allied powers sign a treaty. It was supposed to determine post-war relations between these nations. It sought to make Germany and its allies accept responsibility for World War I. They would disarm, they would make substantial territorial concessions, they would pay heavily towards rebuilding countries that they destroyed in the war. And even during the negotiations, there was some dispute amongst the Allies. Their goals and their objectives were mixed. Sometimes they were incompatible. The economist John Maynard Keynes said that you couldn't make lasting peace by basically humiliating and destroying Germany. But nobody was listening to him. He was only an economist. What would he know? I'm not making value judgments about the treaty, the wars, whatever. But ultimately Germany wasn't pacified or permanently weakened. None of the treaty's goals were met. It was only a matter of time before its terms would be broken. And in fact they were broken before the year was out. And in fact the treaty became a factor, not in establishing peace, but in creating an environment in which the seeds of World War II could germinate. Two different types of agreement. One based on mutual respect, love and well-being of the other. One based on power, seeking to make certain that the other knew their place and stayed there. We have been spending time looking at the theme of covenant. And this is a Bible word for a series of promises, commitments, resolutions, if you like, that God makes with different people in the Bible. We have looked at the covenant with Noah and all creation after the flood. God promises that never again will the earth be destroyed. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at a very strange covenant ceremony involving God and a guy called Abraham. But we saw that even though that covenant appeared to concern a single person and a single family, the whole creation 
promise was still in the background. The whole world was to be blessed through this family. Today we move on to the next stage of that covenant. With Israel at Sinai. Specifically the Ten Commandments. They're sometimes called the Decalogue or the Ten Words. And these covenants are all part of God's unfolding story of God's working to win back the world. And it is a progressively unfolding story. They're, they're not replacing one another, they're building on each other. So the promise to preserve and to bless the world has got to be held in the background as we think about this. A lot's happened in the Bible story since we last dipped into it two weeks ago. Abraham's had his son and two grandsons and that family has started to grow my it's grown they moved down to egypt to escape a famine one of their sons had already become prime minister there but time passed and and pharaoh came to power he didn't know anything about the joseph the one who had become pm and they turned against his people and they enslaved them but even as slaves they were developing into a nation of 12 tribes they seemed to be blessed but as we've picked up the story, they've been liberated by God with the help of Moses and they're setting out for a new land. A new stage in that relationship has been reached. The promise about preservation and blessing of the earth are unfolding with it. And so the covenant unfolds with it. But this time it feels different, doesn't it? So far the emphasis is not on what we have to do for God but on what God does for us God made no demands on Noah and all he said to Abraham was stick with me and be blameless but the commandments well surely that's a change in tone that's surely about all we have to do I wonder when you read the Ten Commandments which of the two examples I began with seemed most appropriate? Do you think it's a Versailles-type God imposing his will and subjugating his people? Or is it like a wedding based on love and respect, concerned with the well-being of the other? I'd suggest that the more popular view is like the Treaty of Versailles. And I would also suggest it's the view many Christians have. Many do see it as big old God laying down the law to antsy humans whom he could smite at the drop of a thunderbolt. They're made by a demanding, angry deity saying, do this or else. When you arrived at church this morning, within your order of service, there should have been a folded sheet of paper and you were invited to kind of open it once you were sat down. And each of those bits of paper contained one of the Ten Commandments. I wonder, as we read from Exodus 20, or as you looked at that slip of paper and saw one of those commandments staring out at you, I wonder how you felt. Can I just... Honestly say, I didn't strategically place any according to inside information. 
The last time I did this kind of thing, I actually put the commands on the walls around the church where I was preaching. It was a much smaller church. People were sat much closer to the walls. And so they'd be sat right under the commandments. And I had trouble getting people to sit under the adultery command, even if that was their normal seat. And they were asking, did you do that deliberately? Well, if you think I'm having a pop at you, honestly, not me. But Steve Chalk writes about encountering that common view of the commandments in a radio show. The subject up for discussion that day was adultery. And the presenter was getting into a flap about being, God being miserable about all the things we do. The Bible's all, don't do this, don't do that, she said. Don't commit adultery. It's pathetic. Steve Chalk said, where does the Bible say don't commit adultery? I've never read that bit. You know fine well it's there, came the response. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Ah, says the dog, all right, yeah, I know what you're talking about now. I just didn't recognise it at first because of the tone of voice you were using. What do you mean, asked the presenter. And Steve Chalk replied, yes, it's true. God says we must not commit adultery. But not the way you said it. Before giving the Ten Commandments, God introduced himself to Israel as the one who's for them. He didn't just outlaw the things humans like to do to spoil our fun. He knows the heartache we'll cause ourselves and others if we pursue agendas opposed to the way he's made us to be. The Ten Commandments are God saying, look, I love you. I've rescued you. I'm the best deal you have got going for you. Don't abandon me and don't do these things because if you do, it'll unleash destructive powers that will slowly destroy you and the community you're trying to build. Trust me. If you use email regularly, you will know that it is easy to misjudge someone's tone. The tone with which someone else's words are read can depend more on what you think as you read them than what they thought as they were writing. And that is dangerous. I've seen big rise develop because a simple statement of somebody saying, yeah, yeah, fine, was read as an unnecessarily stroppy attitude. Hmm, fine. And I believe the popular view of the Ten Commandments as being more akin to the Treaty of Versailles than the marriage vows. It's largely because of the tone of voice in which we hear them. Now, I'm not saying the treaty idea is without merit, as we have talked about in previous weeks. Archaeologists have uncovered treaties between conquering kings and their subjects, and the structure, the language, even the two-tablet thing with the Ten Commandments. Yeah, they're all kind of there. And, they're, and they are designed to let people know their place. There is a certain amount of the big power saying, do this or else. And those two tablet things, you, know, you, you often see them spread across the two stones, commands one to four on tablet one, commands five to ten on tablet two. That's not the idea basically having two copies of the treaty so that one each party had one. So the whole all ten commandments were on both tablets. 
And if we suddenly uncovered the Ten Commandments in the desert and we knew nothing of their background or knew the part, not knowing the parties involved, the popular idea might well be a fair conclusion to come to. And in fact, most people do encounter the Ten Commandments in quite similar way to that. They see them in isolation on boards and churches or schoolrooms or, or, or little penance in homes or, or on slips of paper slotted into an order of service or as we read them today and those things aren't bad scripture talks about keeping the commands before us as we go through life but when we remove them from their context we risk missing the tone that said it might actually suit us if if God let down the law sometimes. If God just told us what to do. Some of us would, would, at least would like that, I think. Everyone would know what's expected of them. Everyone would know their place. They would know that's how the world works. If God does it, it justifies the world being structured in a certain way. But we should be forever careful of confusing the way things are with the way that God intended them to be. Taken in isolation, we can miss the tone of the commandments. As we hear those words, we need to keep in mind both the immediate circumstance on which they're, in which they're being said and the unfolding of the promises made to Noah and Abraham. Promises of preservation and blessing. As Steve Chaw highlighted, the introduction sets the tone. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Everything that follows should be read with that in mind. The God giving these commandments isn't a petty little bureaucrat. It's not someone who wants to throw his weight around. This is the only time that God directly gives a specific set of commandments. And he's not a killjoy, he's not forcing as well on people, keeping them in bondage. Quite the opposite. He has delivered them from slavery. And it's not a list of rules in which he says, if you do these things, I'll come along and help you and bless you. He's been blessing them already. He's already started. For the last three months since he freed them, they've been in a wild wilderness. And even when they've moaned, and boy, have they moaned, God has looked after them. Now, the nature of the agreement and covenant is more like the wedding than the Treaty of Versailles. Through prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea and Joel, the wedding is the image God continues to use to describe the relationship. And specifically this stage of that relationship. It's a relationship based on love and longing for the well-being of the other. And if it's to be an enduring relationship, they really needed to know what was expected of each other. Just like it's not unreasonable or restrictive to expect a bride and groom to make vows at a wedding, so it's not unreasonable for God to ask this of us, of his people. Because behind the ten words, there's an eleventh word. And the eleventh word is love. But Andrew, you say, 
What do you mean? If it's all about love, why put it in writing? Because you know yourself that if you have an agreement with someone and suddenly they want to put it in writing, it suddenly doesn't seem quite so matey, does it? But let me suggest something else is going on here. Something quite the opposite from what you'd expect. These people have been slaves for quite a while. There's chances are that not a single person at Sinai that day had been born pre-slavery. Exodus suggests that Moses is around 80 when, uh, and they were slaves when he was born. And slave-master relations, that was all they knew. In their worldview, the entire network of human relationships was governed by power, domination, subjugation. That was how the world worked. In Egypt, none of them had any status, except Moses, and he blew it. But at least they were all in it together. And now they're free. Everything's up for grabs in this new community. And perhaps little elites are already establishing themselves. Maybe they're building little power bases for themselves. I know how people operate, and I'd be stunned if they got across the Red Sea before that started happening. That's how the world worked. But in the commandments, God said, no, well, that might be how the world's worked so far, but it's not how I work, and it's not how I want you to work. Like Abraham last time out, this people were being called upon to let go of what they knew and to trust God. They were made for freedom, not for the power games of the structures around them. They're God's a lover, not a tyrant. The God speaking these words was a God who gave them freedom. So he says, don't have other gods. The literal text says, don't have other gods in hostility to me. I want your freedom. And if a god is hostile to you, that suggests it's opposed to your freedom. So don't go there. I'm a deliverer, so don't use me or my name to push your agenda and put people on bondage. Don't build relationships on models of power, prestige, subjugation. That's like those who kept you in slavery. That's not how I want you to behave. From family to wider society, to even to foreigners and slaves. Build your relationships in ways which maximize respect and God-given freedom. Don't take someone else's life, wife, property, and you, or use your testimony to falsely imprison them. I have given you freedom. And what God has given you, let no one take away. All life is designed to be lived in freedom. Thoughts, words, deeds, every relationship. God's saying if you let these words unfold and surround your community, it's going to blossom. But if you don't, it'll destroy you, your freedom and your society. God's not saying do this so I can bless you. It's not do this or else. It's do this so that through your actions you will be blessed and you will be a blessing to others. You will be free and you will bring freedom to others. It's like a marriage. These vows are the basis for a future blossoming relationship. Because behind the, tenth, the ten words is the eleventh word. Love.
sadly, merely giving the Ten Commandments couldn't bring about the blessing and freedom that God intended for Israel and his world. The problem with words is that they can very easily remain just that. Human history reminds us how we have rejected both the commandments and the freedom they offered. The entire network of human relationships in our world remain infected with those ideas of power, domination, subjugation, even in countries which claim to be Christian. So be that politically, economically, or on smaller scales, we see vulnerable people lured into ever deeper debt. It's how the world works. It's how the world worked then. And it hasn't changed. And it had even by the AD 50s when Paul wrote Corinthians being like that. Like the Israelites, they too were freed by God for a new life and a new community centered on Jesus. And God sought to bless them and, and through them bless the world. Like the Israelites leaving Egypt, these were largely a people without any kind of social standing. But they lived in a city, which was really quite snobbish. It was a bit of a new money type place with a big celebrity culture. And that was what they knew. That was how their world worked. But it wasn't how God wanted them to be. And yet, it wasn't so much political power as a mixture of money, charisma, wanting to be seen in the right company, that they started to fracture their community. And Paul calls them to let go of that way of life, let go of what they knew, and trust God and his way of bringing blessing to them and to the world. And he points them away from what they knew. But he doesn't point to two stone tablets with commandments on them. He points to a man hung on a cross on the outskirts of a town within living memory of his hearers. He points them to Jesus and all that God revealed in him. He pointed to the cross. And that seemed absolutely crazy. Those who had received the Ten Commandments turned their back on the freedom they were offered. They preferred the power, the domination, the subjugation. And that was what crucifixion was supposed to do. It was a sign, don't mess with the status quo. It's madness to do so. And it seemed like madness to point to those events that in a society obsessed with celebrity status being in with the right crowd and say the world turns on this. Because no one of any reputation was crucified. And Paul says that idea, that might be how the world works. But that's not how God keeps his promise to bring blessing to his whole world. 
because Jesus turned everything on its head. He divested himself of all status coming from heaven to earth and he kept on stripping away the levels of status right down to the grave. From Gethsemane to those Um, to those to whom he offered his back to violence, power and subjugation Jesus turned his back on the way the world worked and put his trust in God into your hands he said to God I commit my spirit and with it he died and he found God true to his promise as he rose from the dead on the third day. It was an announcement that the world may have worked a certain way up to now. But that way of working, it was done. It was so yesterday. But it did something else. See, what the ten words could never do the eleventh word the word of the cross completed the word of love and it inspired the love and the loyalty of millions down the centuries people who will put their trust in God and turn their back on the way the world works People who will live in the freedom he offers and offer it to others. And we might do that in a warm hub, sitting with people, helping them keep warm this winter without breaking the bank. We might do it in choosing a brand of coffee so that the people who produce it are not in bondage to poverty. We might do it by spending time with people who would otherwise be housebound or isolated and delivering them from loneliness. It comes in so many ways. As that man on the cross wins the love and trust of people and they find themselves and their lives being built around loving God and loving others. They find themselves longing to live out the Ten Commandments. Not because of power, not because of force, not because of what God might do to them if they don't, but because they see in him a better, more compelling way to live. Living out of trust and love in a God whose covenant remains. In love and trust of a God whose plans remain unchanged. In love and trust of a God whose plan is still to bless the whole world. And in love and trust of a God who calls us to join him. Grace and peace be with you.